And uh, just to, to bring context, uh, right, what we just came out of was beautiful, was wonderful. It was the presence of the Lord, but it was also violent. It was kingdom invading kingdom. It was the kingdom of God uh, invading the kingdom of darkness. And there are battles going on that, uh, that we don't see visibly, but we participate in uh, by encounter and uh, according to what the Word of God says. And so I just want to jump right in, and I'll just give you a little context. This is, this is the time when Jesus is before a multitude, and the followers of John the Baptist are in the multitude. And they, they question Jesus because John, they're a little perplexed. John's a little perplexed because John is in jail or prison. Um, John will soon be dead. And uh, when he ushers in the coming of the king, he has an expectation which a lot of Israel had with regard to Messiah. And while John knew that Messiah was spiritual, he was also expecting something of the violence of the, the kingdom of Jerusalem, the, of Israel, overthrowing the kingdom of Rome. And it wasn't quite looking the way John expected. And so while he's in jail, he sends his disciples to Jesus to ask the question, um, are you the, the Messiah or should we look for someone else? And so Jesus tells the disciples, go back and tell John what you see. So it's in this context, as soon as Jesus says this, that he follows up and he says, Jesus began to say to the multitude, so as John the John the Baptist's disciples have just been informed what the kingdom is. Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John the Baptist, What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? And he asks again, But what did you go to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are kings in kings' houses. Again he asks, What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you. And more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has been not risen one greater than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. So the first thing Jesus does is he wants to remind us who John the Baptist is and that what John had done was not in vain. In other words, it was prophesied. You remember that the John and Jesus are cousins. Uh, John is probably six months older than Jesus. Um, John was born of, of Elizabeth and Zacharias, and, and you know the whole story there. The angel comes and tells, and there's laughter, and, and there's all of this. And, and uh, it's then when... Um, Mary uh, goes to see Elizabeth when she's having a tough time convincing everybody that she's pregnant but still a virgin, um, that uh, the baby with John the Baptist within the womb of Elizabeth leaps in the Holy Spirit because of the presence of Messiah. And so Jesus and John the Baptist have this incredible relationship before they're even born. When Jesus gets close to John, both in the womb, John leaps because he's in the presence of Jesus. And so John is the one who's preparing people. Messiah has come. And so in this preparation, John positioned or pointed the way uh, away from himself because, you know, he had followers. He had been baptizing. He had been preaching the kingdom. He had been proclaiming a, a, a pre-gospel for the coming of Messiah. And so John pointed away from himself and toward Jesus. And verse 10 says, For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before you, who will prepare a way before you. And then Jesus says in John, well, in John 3.26, it says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing. And all are coming to him. So there's this transition taking place. The disciples of John the Baptist are saying, uh, Rabbi, we have a problem here. Everything you were doing, now this, this guy you said is the one, now he's doing what you were doing. And so there's this tension, and John's saying, it was my job to prepare the way for him to come. So John's preaching prepared the way for people to usher in Messiah. He was fearlessly striving uh, in the gospel, forcefully. He was making our way into the kingdom. He was preparing a way for you and I to walk in the kingdom. So John was the one who paved the way for Jesus' ministry. He was the one. 
You know, Matthew 3.11 says, After me will come, this is John speaking, will come one more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John was called to pave the way for the coming of Messiah. You and I are called to pave the way for the return of Messiah. Just as John the Baptist was this forerunner who came before and said, Behold, Messiah is coming, we today are forerunners who are declaring a similar message, only it's not Messiah is coming first time, it's Messiah is coming again to, for a wedding for his bride and to set up his kingdom the way it was supposed to be on earth. And we're to proclaim the need for all people everywhere to repent and be born again. So let me tell you first and first of all, salvation is violent. Because salvation is a battle between your old self and your new self. It's that old nature, that, that part of us that is entrenched in sin, being redeemed. And there is a battle that takes place in redemption. And the great battle was fought on the cross. But when we give our heart and life to Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus sufficient for our salvation, there, there is a battle that takes place. I remember I, I gave my heart to Christ when I was seven years old. I remember the setting. It was the Southern Baptist Church in Barstow, California. I mean, you need to get saved if you live in Barstow. And um, I remember we had gone through vacation Bible school all week, and, and so we had Sunday morning service. And back when, you know, I grew up, you had Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday, hour of power. You had church all, all the time. And I remember telling my mom, um, you know, I think I want to ask Jesus into my heart, and I want to be baptized. She says, okay, well, let's go talk to the pastor. So she took me to the church, and I remember sitting in the pastor's office. He was behind this big desk. And he's asking me, are you sure you know what you're doing? Do you understand who Jesus is? Do you understand what you're doing? And I said, yes, I do. And so it was the evening service. And uh, he's preaching, and, and we had choirs back then. And so the, the choir is singing Just As I Am. And, and he told me, when they started to sing Just As I Am, that's when you come. So they started singing, and I sat there. And he said, he said Rick, come. I said, no. <laughs> he said, Rick, come. I said, no. And my mom and dad were in the choir. So my mom walks down from the choir loft, down to where I am, you know, and, and reminds me of what I had, that I was the one who had come to her and said, do you want to be saved? But as a seven-year-old, I was fighting the battle right there in a pew in a Southern Baptist church in Barstow, fighting the battle for my very soul, for my salvation. And it's like that for most people. They come to that place. So there is this violence that takes place. This vigorous and forceful followers who are not compromised with the world. Those who are prepared to follow the whole counsel of God, no matter the cost. You see, the, the gospel costs us something. It actually costs us everything. And these are ones who forcefully are taking possession of the kingdom. They're going out after with all their might, with every fiber of their being. But, you know, we can't simply program our way into the kingdom. You can't say A plus B, you know, if I do all the right things, I live all the right way, which is what a lot of people want to do. Entrance into the kingdom requires earnestly following in an unwavering faith. There are many, unfortunately, who are taught the moment you take the sinner's prayer, you're done. You know, you just say amen, and now you're eternally secured, and you just go ahead and live your life happily ever after. Nobody prepares them for the battle that comes. Nobody prepares them for the lies that are whispered in the middle of the night. Nobody prepares believers for the fact that temptations aren't going to go away. They're probably going to get a little stronger. The battle's going to be a little more intense, a little more fierce. And, and nobody can, they, they, just don't worry, you're saved. God's grace is sufficient. He'll forgive you. Entrance into the kingdom requires us to earnestly, fervently follow an unwavering faith. Jesus says this, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. In Acts 14, it says they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. So we have this place here where Jesus is, is teaching. And you understand, and we've, we've taught on this a lot, that the primary message of Jesus as he walked on the earth was the kingdom of God. Over and over and over again, he taught in the kingdom. And he told parables, parable after parable after parable, to help you and I understand what the kingdom is all about, why the kingdom is here. So Jesus is reminding us that conflict 
is an integral part to living kingdom life. If you and I are truly going to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are truly going to be kingdom people, then we have to be willing and able and equipped to fight the battle that is required to follow after Christ. So Jesus says this in, in, in chapter earlier in Matthew 10, while he's preaching, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. What's he say? I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take the cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. So it's Jesus who defines the violence of the kingdom here. There is, there is violence that takes place when the kingdom begins to expand. And, and we have a hard time sometimes wrapping our head around, what do you mean? What does he mean that, that you know, a, a father, a man is going to be against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law? It simply means this. When it comes down to choosing family over Christ, we are to choose Christ first regardless of the cost. We cannot compromise our following of Jesus Christ for the sake of family. We have to choose. We have to decide. And he says here, you know, he came not to bring peace, but he came to bring a sword. And the sword and his fire are a different kind of weapon that are critical for battle. We live in a day and age where the upheaval caused by the kingdom of God is, is not like politics, it's not like armed advances. It shakes relationships. It shakes households. It shakes cities. It shakes nations. Why do you think, and, and we are so blessed, but why do you think there are so many Christians being martyred in the Middle East and Northern Africa right now? Why is that? It's because this spiritual battle, this violence of the kingdom is being made manifest in the very presence of of. Of, of earth, and so the, the battle for God's kingdom is different than the battle that man lives. It's the result of God's order shaking everything. These nations, these Islamic nations, are being shaken by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and because they can't fight the message, they try to silence the messenger. But as it was in the book of Acts, every time they silenced one, ten more rose up. It is amazing to me the testimonies we hear today coming out of Iran and Iraq, coming out of Syria and Lebanon, coming out of, of southern Turkey, coming out of, of northern Africa, of Christians that are being persecuted who are, or are being murdered, not just persecuted, they're being murdered. And we see dads being killed and sons and daughters rising up and taking the message that dad was preaching. So instead of silencing one, they encouraged four more to go preach. We don't know what that's like. We have no idea what it's like. We, we are complaining because our Constitution is being challenged. We are complaining because we're being told we can't, you know, put nativities out in front of city halls. Wah, 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 wah. That, that is not spiritual warfare. This violence of the kingdom, it's, it's the, the spirit of the living God inside of us coming in force. And the kingdom suffers violence. Now, first of all, it sounds like, and, and, and there are those who take this word suffers, it sounds like it's the kingdom of God that's suffering. It says the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. But actually this word suffers means vital activity. It's a force. It forces its way violently into darkness. You see, whenever you have two sides going to battle, both sides are violent. Um, when, you, when you play football, football's a violent sport. Now, whether you're being tackled or whether you're the tackler, it's violence for both of you. It doesn't matter who's instigating it. When the collision comes, it's violent. And it's the same in the kingdom. When we are taking authority in the name of Jesus and we're moving under the authority of the word of God and we're proclaiming the word of God and we're walking the spirit-filled life, living as spirit-led people, there is violence as we encounter the princes of darkness the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, dominions, and principalities, when we encounter them, it's violent. 
And so the question becomes that this kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. The question always ends up being, what are our weapons? How are we fighting this battle? We are the violent dead men. We are eager, impetuous, zealous to grasp the kingdom of God. The dominant theme of Jesus' teaching, I already said this, is the kingdom of God, over and over and over and over. Jesus gives us all these word pictures, all of these parables of what the supernatural realm is. And, and it's interesting. Jesus is like, because he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. The kingdom of heaven is like, and he goes on and he talks about all these is likes. And it's like John on the Isle of Patmos or Ezekiel as he receives his visions, you know, the wheels inside of wheels. Both of them, as they're trying to describe what they're seeing, they're saying, and the appearance was like. The appearance was like. There was nothing in the realm for them to be able to describe exactly what they saw, so they had to take something heavenly, bring it down to earthly terms, to try and help us understand what they were seeing. And that's what Jesus is doing with the kingdom. He's trying to help us understand what the kingdom of God is. And over and over and over again, he says, the kingdom is like, the kingdom is like, the kingdom is like. But right here he's telling us, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence. And violent men take it by force. And so the kingdom isn't merely something we understand in our mind. The kingdom is something you and I are living and walking and, and breathing in right now. It is spiritual. And because it's spiritual, it must be entered in by spiritual means. We must be a holy people. It's the psalmist who says, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may come into the presence of the Lord? The one who has clean hands and the one who has a pure heart. So this battle God has called us to fight is first and foremost is a battle that must be fought from the position of righteousness and holiness. We just can't flippantly say, well, I'm saved now. Come on, bring it on. It requires us to be as Jesus, to walk as Jesus, willing to respond with radical abandonment to the message of the dynamic of God's reign on earth. This is entering into the kingdom by Violent determination knowing this, we are going to die. I remember that um, when, I, when I saw the movie 13 Hours, and I don't know if it's the story of Benghazi, but as they uh, interviewed these former Navy SEALs who are now operatives who were hired by the CIA, and they were hired and sent to Benghazi to protect um, our assets in Benghazi, and it, was, it wasn't a legal operation. In other words, there really wasn't an embassy. It was just a compound. But as they entered these men, they said there came a point where they were in one compound and the other compound where the ambassador is is being bombed. They said, we were told we couldn't go because it was hopeless. And he says, at that moment, we had to determine that we were probably going to die. So these men, they were told to stay. They were told to stand down. And when they were told to stand down, they said, we cannot stand down because our brothers over that other compound are going to lose their lives for sure if we don't show up. So they went with the understanding, with the belief that they weren't going to come back. That's how we're to walk in the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. The thing we are called to do is to be dead. But when we're called to be dead, we're not talking. I think it's easier to be dead in a physical sense than it is to be dead to the temptation of the world. I mean, once, once the bullet goes through your head and you stop breathing, you were Jesus. I mean, how hard is that? I mean, really. But when you are inflicted constantly with temptation, with bombardment, with, with challenges to your authority in Christ, when you believe for a city, when you're believing for a Buddhist temple, when you're believing for the salvation of thousands in a city, when, when you're praying for a gathering to take place in the Colosseum of Azusa on April 9th, there's a lot of violence going on right now. A lot of violence in the heavenlies. And we just can't arbitrarily say, okay, I'll, I'll do my one hour of prayer. We have to be fully equipped. So we enter as violent, and we enter as it was with those Navy SEALs. We go into the battle knowing before we go in, we're dead. It's not about us. We're going to die to everything that would keep us from walking in the authority 
and the privilege and the holiness and the righteousness of what it is to be a follower of Christ. We're to be aggressive in our obedience to Christ as dead men walking. There was that movie with Sean Penn called Dead Man Walking, which is a true story. I have to, some of you were there, but I have to tell you a funny story about that. When I was trying to be cool and, and really grow a big church, you know, one of the things you did was you show movie clips every week. And uh, so this was Easter, and, and my sermon was Dead Man Walking. And uh, so I was talking about Jesus. So I, I brought this clip where Sean Penn is, is there, and, and he's about to die, and, and uh, he's, he's confessing to the nun, and she's talking to him, and just a clip, and then it just stops. And so we had two services, so showed it the first service, and then my assistant, Billy, um, was supposed to rewind it to the mark for the second service so we could push the video. So the second service, the room is full, you know, and Billy pushes the button, and he rewound it about four seconds too far back, and it starts off with two F-bombs. And I'm in the back, and, and uh, Abby Wilday is my worship leader, and, and she's in the back, because we're going to come out and do a worship song after this. And I look, and I go, what do I do? <laughs> and I did what any wimp would do. I ignored it and uh, just pretended like it never happened. So I used to <laughs> yeah, everybody listening to the rest of the sermon, that's, that's for sure, you know, but that's just a dead man walking story. I was a dead man that day, but not for the right reasons. <laughs> so we're at a time right now where Satan and his minions, not the little minions that are little banana lovers, but Satan and his evil cohorts know that their days are numbered. It's like they've always known their days were numbered, but now the days are here that are numbered for them. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit of God, his angels are also present because they know the days are drawing short for everything to change. And so the Holy Spirit isn't here to condemn. The enemy is here to condemn. The Holy Spirit is here to convene the hearts of believers of this promised wisdom and expectancy of the return of the king. And right now we're in the greatest part of the, of the battle for the kingdom of God than any time in history. Because this is the last chance. Now is the time where we have to be fervently going out, spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is a violent activity because we're going into darkness and we're telling liars what the truth is. And right now our culture says liars are true and truthful ones are, are wrong. Right now they say the Bible is wrong. They say people who, who live their lives according to the Bible are liars. People who live their lives according to the love defined by man, those, those are real lovers. So what does this violence of the kingdom look like? I believe Jesus spells it out in, in Mark 11. This is when the disciples couldn't cast out a demon. They're going, oh, Jesus, what's wrong? Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. He could have stopped right there. Because what was he saying? Guys, somehow you thought it was about you. Somehow you thought if you just said the words I said, that it was going to magically happen. He says, so when we're, when we're dealing with spiritual authority, first and foremost, we have to have faith in God. For assuredly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that those things he says will be done, he will have whatever he ha asks. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive and you will have them. That is our, our, our battle cry. That is really the premise. That, that is the whole promise upon which you, you and I stand when we go into battle. That if we believe that we're going to receive what God says he's going to do, and, and Scripture is very clear in Hebrews, and it's very clear uh, in, in Numbers, that God cannot lie. Not that God does not lie. There's a big difference between does not and cannot. God cannot lie because God is truth. And there can be no falsehood in truth. It is impossible for God to lie. In fact, the, 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 in Numbers it says, in the Numbers it's the story of when, you know, Balaam is hired by the enemies of Israel to, pro to prophesy against Israel. 
So they pay him money to do this. And so the, the, the guy that hires him, I think Barak's his name, standing behind him, and Balaam goes, and he prophesies blessing over Israel. And Barak says, wait a minute. Balak, okay, I just paid you a lot of money to go and to curse Israel, prophesy against them. And, and Balaam's response is, look, at God is not a man that he can lie, nor the son of man that he would repent. Has God not said, will God not do? God can't lie. Even the prophet could not misrepresent God when the spirit of God was upon him. And if you know the rest of the story, Balaam said, well, let me tell you a secret here. We don't have to prophesy against them. Just entice them with sexuality and other gods. That's what he said. Entice them to serve your gods and to participate in sexual morality, and you won't have to worry about me prophesying against them because they will destroy themselves because they'll break fellowship with God. The same thing's true for us today in our spiritual warfare. Our battle says we're to believe. That is to have faith in or upon with respect to. This is the same faith that persuades us to give our heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. The same faith you have because that moment you said, yes, I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He came to earth as a man, fully God, fully man. That he went to the cross and he bore my sins and he was buried. And on the third day he was resurrected from the dead. And because of that resurrection power and that price that he paid for my sin, if I come to the Father and I ask him to accept me as son through the work of his cross, that God accepts me and gives me salvation. That same faith is the faith that you and I walk in as we go into spiritual battlement. That's the faith we're talking about here and believing. In fact, it's not something we have to conjure up. When you get saved, you don't have to go and find, I need faith right now to believe. I got, I got to go find faith. Somebody give me faith. It says in Romans that God has given a measure. He's dealt a measure of faith to everyone. It is in every man. God has put, it says in Romans 2, that God has put the knowledge of God into the heart of every man. So that tells me it takes more faith to believe there's not a God than to believe there is a God. Because God has already put it in our heart to know there is a God. And he's already given us a measure of faith to accept that. So to stand and say there is no God takes more faith. It takes more disbelief, you know, which is really, the, it's, it's a belief in believing in something that isn't true. It takes more disbelief to believe that God is not real than it does to believe God is. Because it's not just the testimony of everything around us. It's the fact that God has put a measure in the heart of each man. So it's already in us. Again, Romans 12, 3. For I say, through grace given me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith for salvation and miracles. So it's not something we conjure up. It's what we activate when we pray and believe in our heart. And what about this receive? He says, because he says, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And this word receive means to take hold of. Now, when we take hold of something, there's two contexts of receiving. It can be in the context of someone giving us something, which is a passive taking hold of. Or it can be in the context of us taking it away from someone, which is an aggressive receiving, like possessing the land. Salvation is passive because we're taking something that's already been done for us and we're receiving it. Taking the land is aggressive because now you're going into a place that is owned by somebody else and you're taking it from them. And the thing is, this violence of the kingdom is both passive and aggressive, which is really good for passive-aggressive people. Here's why it's passive. Because it says, according to Scripture, as we are praying for God's will, we're praying for what he has placed in our hearts to pray, and because he can't lie, he's already done it. So something God is doing. It's a possession, but we're praying in agreement with what God's doing. But so our faith is in him. He is ultimately the one who gives it to us. But our faith is also aggressive as we are pursuing this because we're receiving something already possessed by somebody else. It's a, it's a twofold possession. First of all, it's, it's physical. And let's, let's talk about the Buddhist temple. It's a twofold, twofold aggressive possession. It's substance in that the property is there. We can touch, feel, we can see the building. It's physical. It has a parking lot. It has doors. It has windows. It has floors. But it's also spiritual because right now it's inhabited 
by those who are not of the kingdom of God. Or it was. I kind of believe we've, we've kicked them out and they try to come back in all the time. But the reality is this. There is this spiritual aggression where we conquer what belongs to God that has been illegally occupied by spiritual forces of wickedness. So we have the violence and the violent. Again, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Violence is to force into a previously occupied space. To be violent is a forcer who seizes while pressing in violence. So it's the kingdom of heaven coming and penetrating the kingdom of earth with spiritual force. And it's Jesus... In, this, in, in Matthew 16, it's where Jesus has sent the disciples out, and they're, they're blown away, you know, about all the things they're able to do. And Jesus says, okay, guys, so I just want to know. Let's, let's tell me. What are people saying about me? Who, who do they say that I am? Well, some say you're John the Baptist. Uh, some say you're one of the prophets. Some say you're Elijah. Come back. And then Jesus says, okay, well, guys, who do you say I am? And it's Peter who pops up and says, well, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood hasn't revealed that to you, but my Father who's in heaven. And in that context, his next statement is, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So this binding and loosing is done in the context of prayer. It's not, it's not a bunch of wild wackos running around saying, I bind you, I bind this, I loose this. It's praying in agreement with the heart of the Father that his kingdom would come. When Jesus taught us how to pray, when he said pray the kingdom come, he didn't say pray the kingdom come by going out and binding. Pray the kingdom come by going out and loosing. No, he said this, in this manner therefore pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the binding and loosing is done by us praying in the kingdom of God because when we pray in the kingdom of God, that which is in heaven comes and invades earth and authority is exercised. And the best picture of it in, in scripture is the story of Daniel. Not Daniel in the lion's den. It's, 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 you know, it's not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But it's when Daniel is doing his daily devotions, and he reads the prophet Jeremiah. And he reads that Jeremiah had prophesied that Israel would be in captivity for 70 years. And, and Daniel gets his calendar out, and he goes, wow, this is year 70. He says, I better do something about that. And this is what it says in Daniel 9 and 10. So he's just read the prophet Jeremiah, and he wants understanding. He says, God, I know the time's up, but I'm not really sure what you're going to do. What is this going to look like? 70 years up, and so now they say, okay, bye, guys. See you later. Just go ahead, go home. He says, what's this look like? So in Daniel chapter 9, it says, Then I set my faith toward the Lord to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. And he goes on to confess the sins of Israel, but he confesses them as if they were his own sins. So Daniel knows before he can inquire of God, before they can have this conversation, the issue of sin has to be dealt with. So he confesses sin, and we go on in chapter 10. It's... He's in fasting and says this in chapter 10, verse 11. This angel appears to Daniel. Now, I'm still waiting for my turn. I really want an angel to show up. Just being real here. I want to see an angel in my room while I'm praying. I want him to talk to me. And, and I wouldn't mind if he said to me what he said to Daniel. Oh, Daniel, man greatly beloved, wouldn't you love to hear an angel show up and say, hey, God loves you so much. Greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak to you. So he wants Daniel to, to grab onto this. Then he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand talking about the prophecy of Jeremiah, and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, 
and I have come because of your words. So it says the, mo the day you asked, God heard your words, and he said, okay, Mr. Angel, take the answer to Daniel. But then the violence happens. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. Now I have come to make you understand what will happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision refers to many days yet to come. I just want you to get the picture here, because there's some pluralities here we have to see. You know, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. And then he goes on and says, And behold, Michael had to come and to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. So let's just know that heavenly angels are a little more powerful than hellish angels, because one angel was fighting off a bunch of them. You know, but his big brother showed up and, and took care of it. So it was Daniel's prayer that activated the violence that was taking place in the heavenlies. Daniel prays. The angel sent with the answer. On the way back to Dan with the answer, he encounters the princes of Persia, this kings of Persia, and there is this restraining. There is this battle going on in the heavenlies until Michael, who's known as the warring angel, the prince of the warring angels, shows up and takes authority he binds, however he does that, it doesn't tell us, he binds the prince of Persia, and he binds the kings of Persia, and he tells them, holds them back, and the angel comes to Daniel with the answer, and he says, you want understanding, here's the understanding. So it was Daniel's prayer that activated the violence. The prince of Persia was standing there. Daniel had no idea. Now, here's what we have to understand. Daniel had no idea that his prayer was empowering a heavenly battle going on. Daniel had no idea that his prayer was the impetus for a violent war that was taking place at that very moment. And the fact is, Daniel didn't sit there and go, okay, 21 days. I just got to hold on 21 days, and we're going to win. He didn't start out saying he was going to fast for 21 days. It says on the 21st day of his fast, the angel showed up. So Daniel had purposed in his heart that he was going to continue to pray until he got the answer. His idea was, well, I think this is about a 21-day battle, so I'll just, you know, I'll do, they'll, they'll call it the Daniel fast someday, so I'll do the Daniel fast, and uh, in 21 days, I'm going to get the answer. He had no idea. I truly believe Daniel went at the heart that he was going to fast for a year if he had to. He would fast until he died because he needed understanding. He needed an answer of what the prophecy meant and how it would be fulfilled. And here's the thing. The vision refers to many days yet to come. Here's, here's the interesting part of the story. You see, Daniel was praying this 21 days, and there was this battle going on in the heavenlies, and yet the victory of the battle that took place in the heavenlies was going to be seen on the earth when Israel returns to Jerusalem. So a heavenly battle manifest on earth. But here's the thing. It was hundreds of years still before Israel wound up back in Jerusalem. In fact, when the angel leaves, he says, I'm going now because now I have to go fight the kings of Greece. Now, if you know world history, you know that the, the, the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians fell to Alexander the Great. And that Alexander the Great had conquered the entire world by the time he was 32. In fact, history says he sat down and cried because there were no more kingdoms to conquer. Yes, one of the greatest generals ever. And then his, his kingdom is divided into four kingdoms. And it's in that time, but, that, that, but it wasn't until all of that had happened, until just before that, that they had gone back and rebuilt Jerusalem and they rebuilt the, the temple. So it didn't happen immediately. Our spiritual foundation is our calling. This is our destiny to be warriors. It is our destiny to cause violence to happen in the heavenlies. It is our destiny to be violent people. But our violence is manifest in intercession. Our violence is, is manifest by crying out to God day and night. Prayer is the foundation and the fountainhead of spiritual power, 
spiritual breakthrough and spiritual revival. I'm telling you, challenging you, you cannot tell me the history of one revival in the history of the world that was not precluded by intercession. Every testimony you hear, every story you read, every book you read about the great, the great revivals, all the way back to the Great Awakening, even before the Second Awakening, the Great Awakening of the Jonathan Edwards, every one of those revivals, the Welsh Revival, every one of these revivals is precluded by the same thing, fasting and prayer. And we are a people who are always talking, my whole life I've talked about revival. Ever since I was 18 and I was a Jesus freak, all we ever talked about was revival. It was always Maranatha, the Lord's coming. Let's get out and let's see revival. And we're st- I'm still believing for revival. I still believe we're going to see this great revival. Uh, and, and, you know, here's, here's one of the things we understand about revival. To revive means you had to be alive and then you're dying and somebody brings you back to life. That's why the scripture says judgment begins with the house of the Lord. The first thing we're going to see in revival is we're going to see a lukewarm, pusillanimous church get on her knees and cry out in repentance and come back to God and rise up in power. And what is going to do that is going to be persecution, is going to be when it really begins to cost us something, where we are on our face. Now we have the choice to willingly be on our face and walk in obedience. There will be days when prayer will be all we have. And not to say that that's nothing. That is an incredibly great weapon to see miracles in. So prevailing prayer, both at local and national levels, is what we need in this country. My hope is that we're going to rise to this hour, that we will be the violent that take the kingdom of heaven that suffers violence. That we make it our time to restore the ancient landmarks and former victories. And for us, Azusa is the wellspring of the revival that right now they believe is going to spread throughout the world. I mean, I don't don't want us to underestimate. Azusa Street, the name Azusa, originated right here. This is where it originated. We don't know exactly when, because historically it's not recorded until 1769, but in 1769 when Father Crespi wrote his diary, at the place which is now the San Gabriel Mission, and he was told the story of Comalie. It was something that had happened years previously. We don't know if it was 20 years, 30 years, 50 years, but we do know that there is a story. And back then, the, the, the Native Americans, as it was with the children of Israel, they were verbal historians. Somebody didn't sit down and write the stories down so the next generation could read because most of them were illiterate. I mean, they had their little hieroglyphic symbols, So they were verbal in recording their history. So Father Crespi was one of the first ones to record, to write down the history of this region. And the story that captivated him in November of 1769 was the story of Komali, an Indian girl who believed, who had been taught by the Catholic priests years before, had been taught scripture about praying and laying hands on people and the sick recovering. So she just began to believe what the Bible said. She did what Scripture said, and people started to get healed. And the Indian chief up in this canyon up here, the Tongva Indians, part of the Gabrielinos, the Indian chief was sick and dying, and all his medicine men couldn't do anything. And he heard of Komali, and he called for Komali to come in to pray for him. Komali laid hands on him, prayed for him, and he recovered. And he changed her name from Komali to Azuskana which Father Crespi translated into Spanish to be Azusa. And Azusa means blessed miracle. And so the little girl Komali became blessed miracle. And, 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 the, and, and I say legend because there was nobody there who had actually seen to verify the story. Father Crespi was hearing the story from someone who had heard the story. But the story was, the cry throughout the region was, come to Azusa and be healed. Come to Azusa and be healed. Azusa Street got its name from Azusa. The heritage of healing, the heritage that comes from the power of God is here. And we believe it it is by no mistake 
that the Indian village in the, in the canyon where this takes place is the mouth of the river that supplies the water for the entire San Gabriel Valley. It's the mouth of the river that runs from here all the way down to the ocean in Long Beach, follows the trail all the way down. Azusa is the life spring, and water is, is going to be the gold of the last days. Water is going to be that which men are going to contend for. And the wellspring of water, the wellspring of life, flows out of Azusa. Healing flows out of Azusa. We want to see revival. We need to pray that this wellspring of healing, this wellspring that flows, springs up again. And those who are praying for Azusa now, well, we're going to meet April 9th, you know, the 110th anniversary of the breakout of revival of Azusa Street. Lou has said over and over, every time I see him, he says, you know, it all begins with you. It all begins with you. It all began back then. They recognize that the wellspring of this world revival, and there are people all over the world right now who are receiving dreams and visions and prophecies about Azusa now and how it is going to be the launch pad for revival that's going to spread throughout the nations. But do you understand that the foundational wellspring, I mean, the foundation is Jesus Christ, but in this region, it's Azusa. It's Azusa. Why do you think a city of 50,000 people has four Buddhist temples? Why do you think a city of 50,000 people has an Islamic prayer center? Why do you think a city of 50,000 people also has the second largest Christian university in the world? I mean, 50,000 people, 9.6 square miles, has that much violence going on constantly in the heavenlies. Don't you know when a great battle's being fought, it's because there's great reward? We, 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 didn't, we didn't go to war in World War II or World War I. We didn't go to war in Iraq just for the sake of, of no, nothing. We went because there was reward that was expected from the victory. So we are called to be violent. We are called to be the violent enforcers of the kingdom of God on this earth. And the way we are violent, the way we exercise violence is through fasting and prayer as holy and righteous people. It's clean hands. It's pure heart. I pray that the pastors in our city would be unapologetically welcome the Holy Spirit into their midst. I pray First Timothy 2, therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. For kings who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. Well-ordered prayer gatherings will overthrow strongholds of darkness. I, I know that um, I sound like a broken record, but that's okay. I'd rather be broken on the prayer part, you know, prayer, prayer. You know, then, then broke it on some silly jingle. But you can only talk about prayer so much. There comes a point where you have to do it. And there comes a point where you don't simply do it. You know, I look back at my, and I'm so grateful for my heritage. I'm so grateful that I had Christian parents. You know, even though I rebelled, in my heart I had a foundation. I'm so glad that, you know, we had Wednesday night's hour of power. Thank God there's more power than just an hour. But it was a foundation of prayer. Seven years old, eight years old, all the way up to the time I'm 18. Every Wednesday night, while all my friends were out doing whatever, I was at prayer meeting. Most of the time unwillingly, until they let me play my guitar. Then I had reason to go, not to pray, but I got to play my guitar, which about split the church. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was that bad. That was the problem. Yeah, a, a guitar in church was, yeah, our generation was the, yeah. We, we were breakthrough for all you guys. Yeah, for sure. But these prayer gatherings are going to release rivers of living water and revival blessings. Folks, we can't talk about revival. We have to pray in revival. 
We have to pray, we have to pray, we have to pray, we have to pray. When we're done praying, we have to pray. And can I just say that seriously, the more you pray, the more you're praying and you don't even realize it. You wake up in the middle of the night, not even to go to the bathroom, you wake up and you're praying. I mean, the more you pray, the more you make it a part of your life, it requires breakthrough. But, but sound-minded, bold-believing prayer is a lifestyle prayer, a lifestyle that penetrates the darkness of spiritual blindness, a lifestyle that brings God's mercy and deliverance. It's the kind of prayer that shatters darkness, drives back the spiritual challenge of, of the plague of evil and rebellion in our nation. See, here's the thing. Jesus told us it was going to be like this. When John is on the Isle of, of Patmos and he gets the revelation... It's Jesus who comes and talks to him. You, you realize that. Jesus is the one dictating the letters to the seven churches. And his, and his love for each one of the churches is never in question. Jesus loves every one of those seven churches. He makes it really clear. But to each one of the churches also, and to the churches, he didn't have anything negative to say about them. I won't tell you which two. I'll let you figure it out. But why didn't he have anything bad to say about them? What, what did they have in common? You all know? Persecution. They were being persecuted for the sake of the gospel, and they hadn't backed down. And because they were remaining faithful to their call, he told them, cheer up, it's going to get worse. Um, but he had no rebuke. For the other five, he says, I love you, but I have this against you. Either you've left your first love, or you embraced this woman Jezebel, you know, or, or, or you're, you're listening to the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. He goes and says, I, I have this problem. And he has a concern, which should be a red flag today, because those concerns that he had, do you know what the teachings of the Nicolaitans were? Go ahead and sin, because God will forgive you. It was a false grace, which has permeated our culture today, which has permeated the church. It's okay to sin if you're a believer because you're covered in grace. In fact, I t I've, I've had long debates and conversations with believers who have literally taken the fact that when Christ took our sin and removed our sin for us, that therefore they no longer sin. That they're totally sinless. It's being perpetrated, it's, and it's subtle. It's like the frog in the kettle. It's, it's very subtle. But pretty soon you just fall asleep believing in subtleties. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence. There's nothing subtle about violence. And the violent take it by force. We are required by force, by prayer and intercession, encountering the prince of darkness, encountering the prince over Azusa, encountering all of those hordes of hell who do not want this revival to come. Because they know this revival is the end for them. And over and over again, Jesus said to those churches, we who have ears to hear, listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church. And let me remind you, it's not the Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit Everything he says, everything about him is holy. There's nothing unrighteous in him. Jesus points out that many of the churches are distracted. They've neglected their central call, their values, their mission. The distractions are the same for congregations today. Some rest on their laurels. Some are impressed with their own perceived status. Others are blinded to their loss of focus to the word and to the spirit. And many have indulged their own carnality, losing clarity and integrity of heart. And the issue is clear. The Holy Spirit is seeking to find and to speak to those who have ears to hear. And I, I'm, I'm telling you right now, every person in this room, if you'll get before the Lord and say, Lord, I silence myself before you, and I want to pray what's on your heart for Azusa, he will talk to you. He, he's, he's just waiting to tell you what to pray for. He's just waiting for you to engage in what's taking place in the heavenlies. But he's got to make sure, and listen close, that you're like those soldiers at Benghazi. 
when you leave the compound, you're going in already dead. You're not going in to come out alive. You're going in to give everything you have because you're dead to this world. It's vital that we have ears to hear for two reasons. There's nothing more disabling than to become tone deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. There's nothing more disabling than becoming tone deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing more numbing to the soul than being unresponsive to the call of God. See, God will never stop speaking. We just stop listening. We convince ourselves it's not his voice. Or we convince ourselves it's too hard. You know, God, you're asking too much of me. And so the more we ignore the voice, the more we allow other voices to come to the forefront and his voice gets silenced. But he's always speaking. He's always speaking. So here's the key question. Jesus is the one who asks the question when he tells the story of the widow and the unjust judge. His question is this, will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? And if you read the story about the widow, before he says this, when he's talking about justice, he says, will not God bring justice? Will not God respond to those who cry out to him day and night? And then he says, and will the Son of Man find faith when he returns? See, Jesus is measuring our faith back to what he said when the disciples came and said, why won't those demons go out? And Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, have faith in God. For whoever says to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt but believes in his heart that those things he asks for will be done, he'll have what he says. We can't doubt. The battle for the soul of Azusa and for our nation is only be won with weapons of spiritual warfare. These weapons wielded by people systematically meeting in prayer gatherings to marshal sound-minded, biblically ordered intercession. If God's people don't assemble in agreement on their knees, who else will? Prayer is our nuclear weapon. It is the most powerful weapon we have. Paul, when he writes to the church at Corinth, <clears throat> he begins by saying, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God to the tearing down of strongholds. He goes on to say they destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive unto Christ Jesus. The church is the one agency on earth that has access to that promise. Nobody else. We're the only ones. It's just for us. Heaven is waiting. God has indicated his sovereign choice for violence. <laughs> Let me say this. Again, heaven is waiting. God has indicated his sovereign choice for violence. All the way back to Second Chronicles, all the way back to the children of Israel. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and will heal their land. All the way back before we knew of a Holy Spirit all the way back then when he laid down the precepts to the children of Israel. If my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven. Where can God find a violent people who are going to align themselves with his conditions? Because it's not a halfway proposition. You know what happens if you go half-hearted into a battle? You die. Only you lose and die. You don't win to die. You, you cannot confront the enemy and charge halfway and go, oops, I changed my mind, and turn around and run away. His word of promise is where people welcome the Holy Spirit on his terms. And so here's what we got to do. We need to align ourselves with the Spirit. In this critical hour, we dare not hedge on the implications of hearing the Holy Spirit. We can't compromise his intentions for our spirit-filled, spirit-led fellowship. We can't be those who have busied themselves with religious duties but neglected God's commands. That's the one thing I love about this fellowship. We've, we've pretty much gotten rid of religious duties. We don't, we don't ask people to do anything because it's church and that's what we do. 
I mean, when this worship started this morning, there are a lot of churches where you guys have been thrown out in the parking lot before you even got halfway through the first of what you were doing. We're not about pretense here. We're about being spirit-filled, spirit-led people who are not busied with duties, who don't neglect God's commands because the prophet said, and Jesus confirmed what the prophet said when he drew the money, drove the money changers out of the church. He said, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. We must abandon all that distracts us from the Lord's focus on the priority of prayer. We must be advocates for kingdom violence. Our city should never be seen as beyond the hope of revival. I don't care if there's 30 Buddhist temples. My God's stronger than all those demonic spirits. Too many have traded the timeless for the transient. Many are pursuing the clever in place of the costly. Many are embracing the contemporary for the eternal. The seeker-sensitive for the man-pleasing management. We are the violent army of God. That's who we are. That's what we're called to be. Again, that verse I just quoted, 2 Corinthians 10.4. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. And I end with this verse because that's our text for next week. So, I'm going to pray right now, but my challenge to you is this. We can't continue to sit <coughs> and listen about prayer and not pray. And scripture is very clear. The power of prayer is in the power of agreement. And Jesus made it really simple. He just said it's two or three. Thank God it's just two or three because we're not the two or three hundred. I mean, look what it took for Gideon to defeat an enemy. Not even a sword. Just clay pots and a torch and some screaming guys. But we have to be praying. If you can't be here when we're having prayer meetings because of whatever, I'm not here to guilt you into coming. That's the last thing I ever want to do. But I am here to tell you that we are praying here almost every day. And we're praying for revival. We're praying for the city. We're believing for what God's going to do. We have young people who have given up time in their lives, who've given up their jobs, who've given up income, who give, who most of the ones who are here during the day have undergraduate or graduate degrees. And they're not here pursuing a career. They're here pursuing kingdom. They're here pursuing violence as the violent ones because they have a heart for one thing, for God to do what God has said he's going to do in Azusa. And that's all we're called to. You know, it's not like my daughter, bless her heart, when she was a little girl who was always afraid of nightmares, and every night her prayer was, Dear Jesus, please don't let all the people in the whole wide world have bad dreams. We're not called to pray no bad dreams for the whole wide world. We're called to pray revival in Azusa. We're called to pray kingdom come, will be done in this city. And we're called to, to say that when the kingdom comes and God's will is done, Buddhists bow their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Buddhists proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Islamists declare that Isa is not just a good prophet, but he is the son of God who was crucified and buried and rose from the dead. A Christian university that has kind of lost track pursuing social justice comes back in repentance, and we see revival break out on a campus to where they can't even teach in their classrooms because kids are on their face weeping before the altar. But that just doesn't happen because we wish it. It happens because the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. And we are the violent, and the force is intercession, the prayer of agreement. So let's keep doing this. You know, read the story of David's 
mighty men. You know, just a band of rejects. Nobody else wanted, nobody else thought much of them. And read about their exploits. One guy with one sword kills five or six hundred. I mean, just amazing stories. Because they committed themselves to the man God had put before them because we're committing ourselves to the Holy Spirit who God has sent to prompt us on how to work and how to walk. So, Father, we ask in Jesus' name that we would be known in the heavenlies as the violent. God, we want the prince of darkness over the city to be afraid of us, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is in us. God, we are not ignorant. We are not presumptuous to think that, wow, we can just go do it and it's going to happen. It is when he sees us, he sees you. We're this little itty-bitty micro person. We're like Ant-Man. And Jesus is standing behind us. And when they see Jesus, they bow and they tremble and they say, Jesus of Nazareth, have mercy on us. But God, we're not asking for mercy. We're asking for you to destroy them, to remove them from the city, and for revival to come in this city and the valley and the nations. But we recognize our responsibility to fast and to pray the same. And so again, we covenant with you, God. Just this little band of men and women who gather in a little storefront downtown Azusa. That we are the Navy SEALs. And Azusa is our Benghazi. And we know that we're dead before we go out. But we're going to go out with all the violence of the kingdom. And it's going to be a violent collision, but you will win. And we just thank you and we agree. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.